Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everyone. It's another episode of the AJ Bruno Show. Today, I'm joined by Jessica McGinn. She's an archaeologist focusing on Near Eastern and classical history. Hello, Jessica, and it's nice to speak to you. Hi, AJ. So glad to be on. Thank you. Fantastic. So tell us uh, what first interested you in history and made you want to pursue those specific areas in particular. Well, um, I know this is such a cop-out, but definitely seeing Indiana Jones at a young age had an effect on me. Um, I remember being in the basement of my cousin's house, and they put the first Indiana Jones movie on, I think it's Raiders of the Lost Ark, and they're all sitting down there, and there's that scene where Chris Ford is, like, holding a staff, and the light from the tunnel about him is kind of hitting this pendant. And there's this red line going across the sand, kind of showing him where this ancient temple is buried. And I saw that. I was like, okay, how do I do that? And kind of ever since then, I've been super interested in ancient history. Fantastic. So as a huge Indiana Jones fan, how do you find the reality of archaeology compared to the childhood fantasy of what it would be like? Well, you know, I think... Well, the sense of adventure was definitely a big thing for me. And you get that out of the Indiana Jones movies, you know. Um, And I was really looking for that when I enrolled to archaeology. And, you know, the more I studied it, the more um, I was able to learn about humans and just how we've evolved and how far we've come from our first beginnings. And, you know, I think, I think in a certain um, respect, we study history to learn more about ourselves. And the Indiana Jones movies do kind of capture that in a way. You know, Harrison Ford goes like on his travels, he always ends up learning something about himself. And, you know, you definitely do get that in the study of archaeology. And it's super interesting because you do end up having kind of those crazy adventures. Like, I've worked in Egypt and Greece, and I've been able to meet a lot of different people. And, um, yeah, like, for instance, one time I almost got arrested, like, at a Greek site. I was breaking in after hours, and, you know, I had to kill a scorpion in my room. So, I, I don't know, maybe those are still good moments. Um, but, yeah, like, some, some aspects of that. There's probably some countries I wouldn't try that in. Where where were you trying to break in at? Um, I think it was Olympus. This was many, many years back. Yeah. Uh, but we had arrived, and the site was supposed like, to have weird hours sometimes. Um, and the, the site was closed at, like, 3 p.m., and there was no one around. So we kind of had to climb the fence. And anyway, like, the bars kind of ran over, and they were very angry at us. So we managed to kind of talk our way out of it. Um, and everyone is happy in the end, but, you know, I'm going to go scary there for a few minutes. That's good. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what historical figures or events do you find the most intriguing to learn more about? Well, for me, I'm most interested in anything having to do with disasters. So this has kind of been a theme throughout my study, how humans cope with disaster and how we kind of bounce back from it. So, and I think a lot of people listening to the show would agree that pay is 
most historical events that's happened. Um, I'm also really interested in the Maya period in Egypt and the Bubonic plague. Those are kind of missing a Before we get into Pompeii in particular, you've had an opportunity to work on sites in Crete, Egypt, and England. What were some of the most interesting highlights of each of those experiences? Well, getting to study the Amarna period was definitely a highlight for me. That is one of the most interesting historical um, periods in ancient Egyptian history where we had, uh, you know, six It was epic. 
seems like it for sure. I think we're having a sound problem. I don't know if you hear something there or it keeps going in and out. Oh, does it? Oh, okay. I'll, um, is that better? That's a lot better, yeah. <laughs> okay, great. Okay, sure. So uh, another thing with Pompeii, uh, it was lost for a really long extended period of time. How could something as significant as that be lost for so long and had to be more fully rediscovered twice to properly begin to examine and explore it? Well, you know, it was a volcanic settlement. It was essentially just like a field. Mm-hmm. Um, so when people started digging there, um, they were pulling all these crazy pieces of Roman history out of the ground, and they, you know, it was one of the first archaeological digs so people didn't have a methodology going in. They were kind of just digging haphazardly. And it's an interesting place to study for the history of archaeology as well, because as we've gotten better at digging, we've gotten much better at preserving things, at excavation techniques. You can kind of see how much our study has progressed in a way. And for that reason, there are parts of Pompeii that have not yet been excavated because we're still learning. Um, ways of, you know, digging the past that's actually better for the environment and won't do as much harm. Because when you dig, you destroy. Mm -hmm. That's just, there's no two ways about it. It's a destructive act. So parts of Pompeii will be left uncovered for the foreseeable future until we kind of have a better understanding of those processes. I think I read something about a new area of the site being excavated recently. So have you heard about that? And, you know, why is that part uh, being uncovered now? I have heard about that. Um, I think that part is being uncovered um, just because it had the, they had the mix for it. Mm-hmm. I, I can't remember if there was anything specific about it. Sure. sure. Yeah. So, what are some of the most interesting discoveries from your view at Pompeii and Herculaneum? Well, personally, you know, coming from a human remains background, I think the people are just absolutely incredible. Um, there is actually a cast. Uh, so when I say cast, I mean 
a plaster rendering of um, an individual who had died during the eruption. And it's actually of a gladiator and a noblewoman. And so they're kind of huddled around each other. And, you know, there are lots of stories that have been written about them. I don't know if you saw the most recent Kit Harrington movie, <laughs> Pompeii, but it's centered around the story of those two. I, I just think, I just find that super fascinating. Also, we get loaves of bread that have been preserved. And they don't look anything like the loaves of bread you'd buy, like in your local grocery store. They kind of look like a pie almost, and like with with slices almost. And you would have just ripped the bread apart. Things like that. I think the most surprising things, whenever you're digging or you know looking at somewhere like Pompeii, the most surprising things are artifacts that just make you realize how little we've changed. Right. Like. There's graffiti on the walls of Pompeii as well, saying things like, oh, you know, I love my husband, or, you know, so-and-so is an idiot, those <laughs> kinds of things. Like, you just realize how little we've changed as humans. That's funny. And I assume that bread is no longer um, safe to eat or good to eat. I would not recommend it. I no. think you'd be eating, like, ancient toast. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's all charred, and, yeah, I don't think it would taste that good. That's funny. Now, in the movie, I did see, I did see it. I thought it was okay. It's interesting how they tied in a real discovery to the whole plot of it. Um, so I guess you could assume it wasn't going to have a happy ending. But what did you think of that in terms of how it portrayed uh, how the event would have actually unfolded? Oh my gosh! You know, I think they did all right. I'm going to go out on a limb and say I think they did all right. We have eyewitness testimony. It, again, this is why Pompeii is so unique. We have eyewitness testimony of someone actually seeing the eruption and writing it down. And, um, I mean, so you have the actual archaeological finds and you have evidence of all the sediment. And so you can kind of understand what happened because there are different layers, right? So you had your ash and then you actually had um, boulders like being erupted out of the volcano, like the size of cars that were then falling on the city. And then you had like, you know, fire raining down from the sky. It would have been like people thought it was the end of the world. And you had someone also watching it happen, recording it. And you had that scientific aspect. So like there are multiple ways you can understand how that happened and have a really good picture of how the eruption would have taken place. But I think the film did an okay job. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Well, it's better than a lot do, so it's not bad. I um, think so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Pliny the Elder, who's a relatively famous figure, was known to have died during this event. Are there any other notable anecdotes that stood out to you from that time? Um, from the time of the eruption? Yes. Well, I think, well, one of the more interesting parts is that, like I said before, Pompeii was erupting over several hours, and so they actually did send ships to try to rescue people, but when they got to the bay, they actually couldn't get close enough to rescue people that had come down and were, like, trying to get to the boat just because the ash and the fire was raining down, and it would have set the boats on fire. So you can just imagine that scene, like, all these people trying to get rescued, the boats trying to go as close as possible, but it just it just didn't work. And so, unfortunately, 
like no one no one got out alive hmm. essentially yeah hmm. and you know also there were indications that Vesuvius was going to erupt a year I think prior um, the area had suffered a very devastating earthquake and Pompeii was actually being rebuilt at the time of the eruption they were they had begun conducting some um, relief efforts and there's evidence of that in the archaeological record but yeah they never got a chance to rebuild the city because it was just completely destroyed by the volcanic eruption so that earthquake was actually signaling that there was going to be a more catastrophic event in the future. And whereas we would know that now, obviously they didn't have that information. No, I heard about that too. One thing I find curious, so it destroyed two significant settlements, but people would know the name Pompeii a lot more than Herculaneum. Is it because it was that much larger or what's the reason for that? Pompeii was discovered first. So I think it's, the name on everyone on the tip of everyone's tongue. Herculaneum is a very interesting site because it was covered much faster. And so the remains that you get at Herculaneum are much more like if Pompeii was covered over several hours, like Herculaneum was gone into. No one had a chance to get out. And so people were literally leaving everything behind and running out of their homes at Herculaneum, whereas at Pompeii, people were having time to gather kind of like the family silverware and load up donkey carts and try to leave because they thought they had more time. But Herculaneum is the true snapshot of the disaster. Hmm. Wow. So some people would have survived Pompeii then, or no? Uh, I don't think you would have done. I, I think uh, unless you got out, you were leaving right right when it started erupting because it covered the whole entire area. Um, it, it was a complete devastation. Well, so involving this event and others, uh, how do human bones reveal critical information about these sorts of catastrophes? You know, human remains are one of the best ways we can understand how a disaster unfolds. And very simply because a lot of people die in disasters, and a lot of people of all ages die in disasters. So as archaeologists, when we study mortality profiles of a certain population, we look for different things. So a normal um, population will have what's called an attritional mortality profile. So what that means is your most vulnerable groups have higher death rates. So young children and the elderly. So in a nutritional mortality profile, if you're looking at it like a graph, you'll kind of have a big spike at the beginning where all the ages are young, and then it'll drop right down because if you survive childhood, you have a great chance of living to old age, and it'll drop down, and then it'll go up once again in old age because that's the age people tend to die at. and. In other profiles, like a catastrophic mortality profile, it'll just be like a straight line across the board because you get everyone dying pretty much at the same time. So it shows us, you know, the difference in um, how populations were affected. So, for example, if we're looking at the ca a catastrophic mortality profile of Pompeii, it would look like the straight line across. If you're looking at a 
mortality profile of people that died of the bubonic plague, it might be a bit different. Um, younger people might have died. More elderly people might have died. Your people in the middle might have had a better chance of surviving. If we're looking at a profile of people that have been through war, or should I say like young men that have gone to war, like let's say in the English Civil War, um, your catastrophic mortality profile would be men who are young. So from like 16 to 35 will be a big spike, and then um, for the older men, won't really have as many represented. So all these different graphs can kind of give us an idea of how a certain population met its end. Is there another specific site or incident besides for Pompeii that you think has the most interesting uh, catastrophic mortality profile? I think the bubonic plague is very interesting, and I don't think we talk about it enough. Oh, <laughs> it was, you know, one of the largest population health disasters of all time. And you have people dying like crazy for years and years and years. Like Queen Elizabeth used to go out of London every summer because they knew the plague was coming. And they knew people were going to die. And you had a much better chance of surviving in the countryside than you did in the cities just because of the close contact with other people. So um, it really affected the way people lived their lives. And it, it was a very, even in our cultural conscience today, a very significant event. Yeah, I mean, it's probably maybe the most cataclysmic event in history to the number of people that died. But um, although I did hear that afterwards for whoever was left, life was somewhat better then. So I guess there's a bit of a silver lining to it all. I mean, you got to find the silver lining in everything. Right, even that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> even the bubonic plague. Yeah. Uh, when I was working at Rothwell, I was building, so basically my work, like in that medieval trial chapel for my master's degree, I was working with all these skulls. And, like, there are just rows and rows of skulls. It's the coolest place. I mean, if you're into that kind of stuff, it's very cool. Other people, you know, might be a bit, uh, they're a bit freaked out, but, I mean, I find it really interesting. And I was assigning an age of death and sex for all these individuals. I was building one of these mortality profiles because we are trying to understand basically, like, what the heck are all these bones doing in a basement? And are these people that possibly died from the plague and they all had to be put down here? Or are they people that died from war? Or are they just normal people that died? Hmm. And um, so my profile in the end kind of looked, it was a mix between an attritional profile, so that spike, like, at the beginning, and it had kind of, like, a raised line in the middle, and then there was a big spike at the end with the elderly people. So in my analysis, I said, it's most likely that some of these people down here would have died of the plague, because I just had a lot of people of all ages, but still kind of an attritional profile. So it was interesting because everyone was affected by it. Like you can't go to a medieval cemetery and not say that, you know, some people wouldn't have died of the plague. Like it was just that prevalent. No, and I've been to some museums and sites where they'll talk about that. I find it interesting. It's depressing, but it's interesting. So it's depressing. Yeah. Yeah, but it's interesting. And like I said before, it's a huge part of our history. So, you know, a lot of people were affected by it. And everyone that's living today that like comes, 
European ancestry. Like your ancestors are <laughs> the ones that survived the plague. Yeah, well, good for that, right? So exactly. <laughs> um, well, speaking of happy events, another volcanic eruption, uh, much earlier than the one we discussed, was believed to have de- devastated the Minoan civilization beyond repair. Uh, how did this event compare and differ from the Vesuvius eruption? You know, um, so the Minoan civilization, super, super fascinating, really, really interesting um, way of understanding the Greeks before kind of what we believe to be um, classical civilization. And like you said, AJ, they also suffered a catastrophic event. And similar in a lot of ways to Pompeii. If you ever visit the site of, um, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on the name right now, Santorini, that's it. If you ever visit the site of Santorini, there's a place called Akrotiri where you can go and it was covered in a volcanic eruption, I believe. Mm -hmm. And um, archaeologists are still digging there and it's all covered and it's it's covered to protect it from the sun and you can go and visit and uh, wall paintings are preserved. And, uh, you know, not as, not as great as Pompeii, but, again, like another excellent snapshot into a civilization we might not have known more about if this site hadn't been there. Um, I was digging at Gornia in Crete, and Santorini is one of the islands, smaller islands, and it's at what I thought would be quite far away from Crete, but when we were digging there, you actually find these little jars and they're full of um, pumice stone and you know like volcanic stone Mm -hmm. these little little jars because people that were living at Gornia could actually see the smoke coming from Santorini and they understood something terrible happened there and they were so freaked out that they were praying to their gods that whatever gods they worshipped to not have that happen on the island of Crete and um, that didn't work out, did it? So. <laughs> well, the known civilization went away, and it made room for the Mycenaeans, and the demise of the known civilization is still up for debate. Mm-hmm. It's kind of one of those things where there were a lot of chain reactions that happened, and so the civilization was taken over by the Mycenaeans. Uh, but, yeah, unfortunately, I think their little pumice stone prayers didn't really work out for them. They were defeated in another way. Right, yeah. Oh, doesn't seem like it. So are there other lesser-known disasters that have been critical archaeological discoveries which people may be less aware of? Um, I think, like, when we think of disaster Obviously, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is like an environmental disaster, but I think the Amarna period in Egypt is a little bit of a lesser known disaster um, in, in terms of like how we think of, you know, these catastrophic events. Basically, this pharaoh named, named um, Tutmos, he, or was it Tutmos? Well, he, he renamed himself Akhetaten. He moved thousands of people into the middle of the desert, and they only stayed there for about 17 years. And the conditions were very hard 
for working class people, and a lot of people died in building the city for the pharaoh. And so I like to think of that as a catastrophic event because you have all of these individuals, um, maybe by no will, no will of their own, moving to, you know, this spot in the middle of the Egyptian desert that was not inhabited before, and they had to build this new city. And like I said before, it was very rough on the people that were working to build that city. And it was only inhabited for a short period of time. So I'd like to think of that as a bit of a catastrophic event as well. Interesting. I've seen and read some stuff about this, and that was the one with the semi-monotheistic, right? With um, I think he made all those radical changes, and people didn't like it, and then they wiped yeah. his memory out. They tried to wipe his memory out afterwards. Yeah, so that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, so that's definitely one. Another thing with Egypt, not so much catastrophic, but I found out recently. I didn't realize that the Nubians actually ruled the country and were pharaohs for like 75 years or something. That was a bit, bit strange. Yeah, it's crazy. Egypt, it, you know, what's funny about Egypt is we all think it's um, very, a very ordered society for some reason. I think because, you know, these people built the pyramids and everything, and you look at those, you're like, wow, you had to be super organized and super together to build those pyramids, but it went through a lot of upheaval and a lot of, you know, bad things happened in Egypt and the very interesting things that we get to study today. But yeah, Egypt's definitely interesting. It's a place where a lot uh, of people would think that catastrophic events happen, but they do. No, definitely. So what do you think are some of the biggest mysteries in classical archaeology still unanswered today? And do you have any personal theories about any of them? Yeah, you know what? I read this question, and I was thinking a lot about it. And I think, you know, and mysteries for archaeologists are opportunities. You know, uh, people always ask me, they're like, oh, but hasn't everything been dug up? Like, hasn't everything been studied? No, there are still <laughs> things we need to study and we need to find out more about. I think the disappearance, quote-unquote disappearance, of the Minoan civilization is very pertinent and something that should be studied because the rise and fall of civilizations is very informative for us today. It's something that we can apply you know, to to our everyday lives. And so I think where the Minoans went is an important one because they dominated Greece. They were everywhere. I don't think people realize that. Like, um, and, and these Minoan frescoes, like they're very uh, distinct kind of paintings. Like, for example, there's this one of a man jumping over a bull. If you've never seen that one, go look it up right now. It's a Minoan bull <laughs> jumping fresco. And they're found all over Greece. And they actually uh, have found them in Egypt as well. So the, the Minoans, they were everywhere. They were like, they permeated Greek culture, and then all of a sudden they were gone. Hmm. So continuing to study what happened to them, I think, is very interesting. No, it's definitely one of them. And I've heard that they were probably just conquered too. They were so weakened by that disaster that they were just taken over and absorbed. Well, the Mycenaeans were a very, well, I mean, the stereotype is is that the Minoans were like these, you know, kind of 
kind of like peace-loving hippies. They have all these flower frescoes, all these beautiful frescoes of like, you know, an octopus and a bird, like, oh, like, like you know, the hippies of ancient Greece. And then the Mycenaeans come in and, you know, they have like all these like war frescoes and they built these huge palaces with like all these fortresses. And so they were, you know, the scholarship basically says, oh, you know, they're the, they were the warmongers, like they were there to take everyone over. Hmm. Um but that might not be true. No. There, there might be evidence that, yeah, like you said before, the Minoans were so weakened by that disaster. Maybe they moved out, um, and the Mycenaeans like had a really easy time moving in. You know, like uh, there are lots of different perspectives on that. So yeah. definitely mm-hmm. something to look out for. For sure. So how realistic do you think it is that a place like Atlantis ever existed? And if so, where do you think it was? I think stories like Atlantis point to things that might have actually happened in history and are just kind of passed down through generations. And, you know, it's like this intergenerational game of telephone where something crazy happens and years and years and years and years later it becomes myth. You know, um, there was, I remember sitting in one of my undergraduate classes and one of my professors was up there talking and, you know, he said that humans have a long memory and one of the ways we try to avoid disaster again is through passing down stories. And he personally believed that our fear of Bigfoot and monsters, you know, (laughs) these big shaggy hairy monsters are actually a cultural memory that we have of things like woolly mammoths that existed around the time humans existed. And that's kind of one of the ways we stay afraid of those, you know, the woods and scary places where we might encounter a big hairy monster. And I kind of feel Atlantis is somewhat similar. You know, you have this huge disaster that completely wipes out a city and it gets passed down from generation to generation to generation. And before you know, it becomes this, People are living underwater and, you know, are, are magical or whatever. But if I had to if I had to guess where Atlantis was, I would probably say it was some near, somewhere near Santorini um, where that disaster happened in the Minoan times because that, that was very significant for people and a very scary thing, like I said before, as evidence in the archaeological record. And it probably did stay in the cultural conscience for a long time. And now today we have it as the story of Atlantis. Yeah, that's one of the theories, but who knows? I like to see evidence of things, but I think it's it's possible, but again, it's all speculative, so. You always need evidence. Yeah. So, uh, shifting gears a bit, uh, those of us who watch the few good shows still on the History Channel may have seen you on Ancient Top Ten. Uh, how did you end up being interviewed for that, and what are your reflections about it? Um, so I am part of a company known as Path Preservers. So this company connects people who work in heritage and history um, with big media conglomerates that kind of need people to go on and talk about these kinds of things. And so I've been with them for nearly 10 years now, and I've done a few shows with them. And, you know, it's such a great experience. You're always going to be nervous before you go on TV because you're like, oh, my gosh, you know, I hope I don't mess this up and say something totally (laughs) wacky. But I really enjoyed doing uh, 
doing the the show because you kind of get there and it's more like a collaborative collaborative experience that people would expect. So, you know, the producer asks you a question and you answer it. And then sometimes you're like, oh, but this also happened. And they're like, great, like, throw that in. So it's, it's a bit more creative. It's not as rigid as I think people would think it is. Hmm. Oh, that's, uh, that makes sense. Was there an episode or a topic you liked the most? Oh, that's a hard one. You know, I love talking about Cleopatra. I do. But the inventions are really interesting, too. I think we have this idea of us living in the modern world that, like, ancient people were dumb or something like that, um, just because they don't have, like, iPhones. But, you know, ancient people were very creative. And they got a lot done because, like, they... They didn't have access to the same kind of tools we did. And they were doing really cool things. Like, for example, in Pompeii, I love this. Uh, at Pompeii, you'll get, like, bits of white limestone in the pavement. And that is because when it was dark out, it acted like a street light. The limestone would reflect the moon, the light of the moon, and it would kind of light up your path a little bit. Because, you know, lamps burn out and stuff like that. So, I don't know, just things like that I find to be really interesting and and very smart. And Mm. so, I love discussing those kinds of things. That's pretty inventive of them. So, do they have, like, the list made up, or did you actually get to contribute choices to that? So, they hand you... So, before you go in, they'd, like, sit on, and they ask um, if you have any other ideas or anything that you'd like to add, like, please do, and you share your ideas with the producer... And you kind of go from there, but you usually do get kind of a list of topics that they want to cover. And then, you know, as the expert or the person talking, you can definitely infuse your own expertise into it and talk about what you know best. Mm -hmm. Sure. So now you have a bit of a different role with the Canadian government. Uh, Can you tell us about that and anything else of note you have planned in the future? Yeah, so I work in emergency management for the government of Canada. Um, I finished my master's degree, and I was thinking about going straight into my PhD, but I actually wanted to work a little bit first in the real world and kind of apply my skills. And so I got this fantastic job, and basically I, like, work as an analyst and a researcher, and we make sure that Canada is prepared for any kind of emergency events that might happen. Mm. And it's super interesting, and it's really great justification of archaeology and archaeological theory in the modern world because the only disasters we can study, you know, as case studies actually happen in the past. And some of the things we look at might have happened like 100 years ago. Hmm. Um, And making sure those things don't happen again is important. And the only way you can do that is by studying history and archaeology. So it's a cool perspective. Very cool. What sort of events from 100 years ago? Oh, you know, like floods. Floods, yeah. Um, Yeah, like you know, dams breaking, um, infrastructure collapsing, uh, you know, like health events. Um, like, for example, in Ottawa, the city in which I live, like malaria was this huge thing here. I didn't know that until I started studying uh, the history of Ottawa. When I first got back, I was put on this really cool project. Um, right now, we are building a subway system through the city, and this grave was actually dug up as part of that. And there were a bunch of people in, in the grave, and they actually found, like, evidence of tuberculosis on some people. Hmm. And so there were all these epidemics kind of sweeping through the city every summer. 
like I said before, with the bubonic plague, like summertime is the worst <laughs> time for any kind of sickness to go yeah. through. I know we all, I know winter's coming, and we're all like, oh my gosh, like flu season, but summer was a bad time for people. And so people would die in the summertime, and they had nowhere to bury them. So they would bury them um, in this public plot of land, and that was actually dug up. And so I was able to study some of the people that had died uh, during those, like, catastrophic events that would happen every year. And we've gotten much better at managing disease outbreaks, but... You know, there are lessons, again, we can learn, like, how do we limit exposure to the common cold, you know, washing your hands, um, making sure you don't go into work if you're feeling sick, those kinds of things, like limiting interaction and contact. You know, those are lessons we can still take from the, um, the ancient world. No. And those are lessons I talk about a lot, but very few people seem to listen to them, unfortunately. I know. <laughs> If you listen to your public health department, don't <laughs> shake hands if you have a cold. That would be nice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, don't we have a vaccine for that? I that's <laughs> we do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and also get vaccinated. <laughs> yeah, get vaccinated. Yeah, I do that. Um, but anyway, it's been a, a fun discussion, and uh, thanks again for being on. Yeah, no, thank you so much, AJ. This is great. Great. All right, thanks, and uh, have a good day. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Jessica McGinn um, talking about disasters and other fun past events related to that. Anyway, we'll be back next week. We have a World War II episode lined up. Uh, that should be should be a lot of fun, so you want to check in for that. We'll have a really good scholar. And so until then... Uh, This has been A.J. Bruno for The A.J. Bruno Show. I'm signing off once more, and I'll see you next time. Thanks.